Welcome to Music Crush, a new music podcast hosted by Flute New Music Consortium. I'm Elizabeth Robinson. And I'm Nicole Reiner. And announcing FNMC Presents, an album of previous commissions and competition winners performed by members of the Flute New Music Consortium. Repertoire includes works by Sean O'Pevolo, Joseph Hallman, Becca Sims, Cherie Slider, and others. Purchase a copy today. All proceeds go directly to FNMC. Flute New Music Consortium, Inc. is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Your contributions are tax deductible to the extent allowed by the law. Visit www.flutenewmusicconsortium.com for details. Kimberly R. Osberg is a composer from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, who specializes in interdisciplinary collaboration. Her projects have included dance, film, environmental sound installations, instrumental theater, plays, opera, visual art, award ceremonies, and stage combat. Her work has been featured by Samsung as part of their featured VR experiences, and her 2020 Commissions from Quarantine project was a featured story in both the Dallas Morning News and WQOW News 18. She is also an active writer, creating original text for over a dozen musical works, including a tone poem for projected text and chamber orchestra, and an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart for her operetta, Thump. Kim lives in Portland, Oregon, where she enjoys writing, hiking, watching movies with her partner, Mauricio, and attempting to keep a few plants alive. Welcome to Music Crush, Kim. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like this is overdue, actually. Um, I mean, this is the first time I'm getting to talk to you in person, but um, I think, I, I don't have statistics for this, but Elizabeth, tell me what you think. I think in the short history of this podcast, your piece that your flute quartet that you wrote for Elizabeth, which is called Foul Play. I think we have probably referenced that more than any other piece. <laughs> and we've also played part of it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we played a little preview in an episode. So um, so I was privileged enough to also get to record that with Elizabeth for her album, Aviary. Um, you also wrote a solo piece for her called Hoppy Feet, which is also on that album. How did you two meet? Um, yeah, I mean, I it was first of all, it was super cool to have that piece done on the album because the performance is so beautiful. And like, shout out to Arrowcade Music for doing such a great job putting that together, also. Absolutely. Um, but I, you know, Elizabeth and I, we connected, I think it was through Project 12. Is that right? um that commissioning series I I think that was the first time that you worked with me and knew about it I had been following you on Twitter for like a while before that <laughs> yeah, I think Aww. there was a lot of there's a lot of um activity on my Twitter um following the commissions from quarantine project that I did in early 2020 just because I was offering these like super cheap uh, commissions. And so there, I ended up working with about 40 different um, musicians um, on that project. And so there was like a lot of just like, you know, suddenly there was a lot of people who knew my name <laughs> just from that. Um, and so later that fall in 2020, I put out a call um, for a more substantial um, commissioning series where I was going to write one piece a week for 12 weeks. Um, and so I had some constraints around how to make that possible um, with duration and the instrumentation and whatnot. And Elizabeth was one of the 12. And that's where Happy Feet came from, the solo oh, wow. that we did together. So that was super fun. <laughs> and then um, later I did another project commissioning series and Elizabeth reached out again. And that's kind of where Foul Play came from as well. So it was really 
I don't know, I've, I've been really enjoying working with Elizabeth and I know that we're still talking about other future ideas. So there's probably a lot more chaotic flute music coming soon. <laughs> nice. Very we difficult to get rid of me once you get started. <laughs> so, um, especially since Kim is kind enough to embrace the chaos. <laughs> well, I guess we'll get more into the chaos in a, in a minute here. I was, you know, I always, I always read more carefully a guest's website before we have you on the podcast and front and center on your homepage. I noticed for the first time this past week uh, that it says original music for anyone, anywhere, which I love. Uh, What all do you mean by that? And I, you know, use this as a, as a venue for talking about any, any number of your projects you know especially during the pandemic when I had a lot more time than I was expecting I was using that opportunity to kind of like redo my website and kind of think about Mm -hmm. like you know what music am I missing or like what do people really need during this time and I think during the commissions from quarantine project I was really struck by not just like the number of people who wanted to participate but also um kind of where they were participating from and also like what circumstance their like musicianship was coming from their background um and you know so like we had I had some people who were like professionals and like you know top tier orchestras reach out to be a part of the project but I also had um people who were parents or grandparents who wanted duos to play with like their very young um you know children and grandchildren and like they just didn't have a lot of stuff where like one of them could play a little more than the other and like they wanted to have something they could do as a family, especially since they were like stuck in quarantine together a lot of the time. And so I think for me, it was just kind of like, I was thinking a lot about at that time to like what it really meant to me to be a composer and to be an artist working, um, not just in a, a quarantine context, but just like moving forward. And I think for me, that was something, the idea of just like that there's people of all different, um, you know, uh, experience levels that really find, you know, fulfillment in meaning in performing music. And it's not just people who do it for a living. There's people who just want to play like something fun with their family after dinner, or, you know, want to have something calming for themselves when they're trying to wind down from a long week. And those kinds of music making experiences are just as valid as the kind that we like make in the big professional concert halls or in a recording studio. And so that kind of like idea of music being for anyone, anywhere, wherever they're making that music, whether it's like like in a park or in a studio or in a concert hall or a retirement center um, is kind of like the like resulting um, of all of those like rambling thoughts (laughs) that I was having at that time. That's beautiful. I love that. You already mentioned some of your commissioning projects during the quarantine. And one thing that I've really admired about you is the sort of creative ways that you group or inspire these projects to come about. Um, I think one of your ongoing ones is the New Music Cookbook. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, I'm really excited about this project. It did end up taking a bit of a hiatus because I caught COVID in the middle of it. And so I got really backed up project. So I'm hoping that that's something that I can pick up again um, later this year. But basically the idea was just that like um, a lot of my musician friends, especially during the pandemic, were really getting excited about like cooking and baking. And so I was like seeing a lot of my music friends like sharing this like really delicious looking <laughs> food. Um, and I like, I know how to cook some things, but I'm definitely not 
anything fancy. You know, it's very like meat and potatoes kind of Midwestern <laughs> background is my culinary experience. And so um, when I was thinking about another project to do that would make things accessible, I was also thinking a lot about, um, I had started working with this group in town here who uh, does a lot of like programming around social issues. And so they might do a concert about, um, you know, racial justice or do something about, um, you know, like the rights of indigenous peoples or one of the concerts that they had going on was about um, houselessness and all the different forms that's taking um, in our country now, whether that's as refugees or people who have lost their homes due to other circumstances. And in our own community here in Portland, there's like some pretty severe houseless problems. And it just feels like there's so little that you can do as an individual person to even start to address those things. But I was seeing all of these community groups really coming together and trying to work together to get people through like the really tough times of the quarantine um, and all of the kind of like um, increase in violence in our area during a lot of the protests and things that were happening from outside agitators coming in. Um, and so with the new music cookbook, the idea was that we would kind of like take recipes that musicians already had and that they like really loved and that we would write music that would set that um those recipes either like using the um overall like flavor of the dish as like a starting point or even maybe using like the steps of like simmering or letting something you know like boil over um and i think you know through those collaborations the idea is that like once i get all of those pieces together because there's um 24 different projects involved with that um, that that would be put together as a book and everyone who participated would get the full booklet for free, but then the book itself would be available as a PDF online for sale and all the proceeds of that would be donated to my local food bank. Um, and that people can either get it like for free if they show that they donated the equivalent or more to their local food bank, or if they're going to pay me directly, then I will like put those proceeds to my local food bank. Um, and so for me, it was just trying to find a way to like tie some like direct action and um, direct support for people in my community while like finding a way to tie that into like art making. And so that was kind of my attempt to do that. So I'm really committed to that project happening. And it was a big bummer when I had to like put it on pause just to recover from my health and catch up on some of those other projects I needed to do to pay rent. Um, but now <laughs> that like things are, I'm kind of like back in control of my schedule again. Um, you know, having caught up on things, I'm really hoping to dive back in and get that finished, hopefully by the end of um, this year, um, to get things going for the spring next year. That's really awesome. I knew about the recipes. I don't think I knew that it had a humanitarian bent to it. Could you tell us a little bit about your other commission project, Commissions from Quarantine? So I've mentioned that a couple times. <laughs> I think like during the start of the pandemic, I had just recently moved to Portland from Texas and I moved here because my partner got um, a new job. And so I moved up here with like, I didn't know anybody and I didn't have a job set up for myself and I didn't really know what I was gonna do. Um, and so we had been here for about eight or 10 weeks before everything just shut down completely. And a bunch of the arts organizations were letting staff go and had hiring freezes. So I was like, I have no idea what I'm gonna do. Like all I know how to do is like make sounds and like organize other people's <laughs> concerts. Um, and so I was kind of, of trying to figure out what to do and I it was just really hard seeing so many of my musician friends like going through a lot of the same thing of like canceled gigs and all the financial uncertainty and just like 
didn't really have a sense of how long this was going to last or like what we could do or like what, you know, like how we were going to make art in this like new weird space where like we're all like in little screens now instead of like in person. And I think looking through like my own catalog, I was also kind of saying like, I really don't have like a lot of like solo or duo music. And that's like basically all people can do right now. So like, what's a way that I could like try and make some music right now, but also like not make it like a huge financial strain for all of these people who might want to make art, but don't necessarily have the funds to do like a full commission right now. Um, And so commissions from quarantine was kind of born from that. And so there was like three price levels. One was like for $5, you could get a one minute piece and for $12, you could get a two minute piece. And then for $20, you could get a three minute piece. Um, and all you had to do was send in like what you wanted the instrumentation to be and like a word or two, like describing the tone you wanted. And then like some kind of like technique or something you like to do on your instrument that you wanted the piece to have. And I kind of put that call out, you know, and I was like, oh, I'll keep this window open for like three days. And if I get like, you know, two or three people that want to do it, like that'll be like a nice distraction for like maybe a week or two. But in the time that I had the window open, it ended up just like totally exploding on social media. So I ended up with 40 commissions instead. Oh, um, and they were all different lengths and like people were, it was really interesting seeing what words people picked because some people really wanted something like, I just want something like calm and nice and peaceful. And some people were like, I really want something that's like COVID specific and like really about like lockdown and getting the quarantine crazies. And like, some people were like, I really want a piece about hobbits. And like, you know, so it was, it was just really interesting, like seeing what people really felt like they needed in that moment. Um, And getting to sit and like do these like really short projects, I think for me as a composer was super exciting because you know, like, oh, like this person wants something for like, that sounds like a hobbit wedding. So like, how do I make that happen for a double bass in like two minutes, (laughs) you know? And so like, I think these like really interesting challenges and having so many of them to get through um, really helps me just also kind of like get a little bit of distance from like my kind of super self-critical brain and just kind of have fun with it. And I really got to try out lots of different things. And we had some really cool instruments. Somebody wanted something for violin and Zarb, which is like this really cool, like Persian drum. And there was somebody who commissioned something for double steel pans and something from a lot of cut. So it was, um, it was a really cool experiment, just kind of getting to like go in and do all of these like little short pieces for all these different things. And some of those pieces ended up expanding into much, much bigger projects. Um, one of them that was supposed to be for flute and cello ended up like bursting into this whole like 30 minute piece, <laughs> um, you know, about like that was based on a storybook. And like, you know, there's been others that led to like just future projects because they'd really enjoyed the miniature I wrote for them. Um, and then again, in the interest of keeping things like really accessible, all of the music that came from that project is available for free on my website now so people can go and download any of the pieces from that series for free and just play it whenever (laughs) it your your quarantine project reminds me of um i've seen i've seen something sort of similar to that on flutist and composer alice jones website Mm -hmm. and then i noticed that she keeps cropping up in your library on your website as well so both of you were were writing these you know in in in, the projects are different but you know as a kind of miniature idea for people um so how did you two meet 
And are you continuing to work together? Like where, where, where is your professional relationship now that the pandemic is over? Yeah, I mean, her and I definitely met during the Commission Some Quarantine Project. And like, mm-hmm. I really, I don't know if like she had started her, um, she, her series is called Tiny Efforts. That's um, right. And I couldn't remember if hers started or mine did, but we just kind of ended up finding each other through this mm-hmm. kind of mutual project. Um, and she was doing like a virtual recital, but she also works with young students. And so she asked her two pieces for this Commission Some Quarantine piece that she could do with like her different levels of students. And so one was meant for like super beginner, you know, just like very like restricted range, like eighth note, quarter note, half note kind of ideas. Um, and the other one was for a different group. And it was really exciting because the, the one that I did for her slightly older group was based on like different colors, like color ideas and getting different ideas. And she actually had them not only like play and record like that piece, but she had them um, use it as the basis for like an electronic composition that they came up with like themselves where they kind of like mashed up like different sections of it or like repeated things and really got to take the material and like make it into something totally their own and so getting to see the way that she was able to use that as like a basis for them to have their own space to create was really exciting and I think since that project her and I haven't like collaborated on anything larger yet I know that she's like also super busy because she's like writing music and playing and stuff all the time but I would certainly love to work with her again because she's fantastic but I think you know it was like she's an example of someone who I was really excited to meet through that project is just somebody who's just like also super um she seems like a super generous and super giving person and like she's just so creative and fun to talk with so it was really exciting to work with her on that Oh, I love that. Uh, you also have quite a few short scores that are just completely for free on your website. I haven't been f- happy with the question I have formed for this, but I do want to get your thoughts on this. I mean, you're you're generously, you know, not only making your musical music accessible for very low prices, but but also for free. Do you ever? feel like there's a line you need to draw in the sand. You know, some some composers really never want to give anything away for free. Other composers I talk to are like, yeah, just play it. I, I benefit more <laughs> from you playing things. But what are your personal thoughts on charging for music versus giving it away? You know, what are the pros and cons? And, and where do you draw that line in the sand so you don't feel kind of abused? I mean, it's definitely a balancing act. And I think for me, I tend to take everything on a pretty case by case basis. I think one thing for me is really starting from a place of transparency. And so like on my website, I have like prices pretty clearly laid out of like, this is, if this is how long you want it and this, how many performers you have, it's like right there in this like very clear list. Um, and that there's like notes about like, if you are in this, you know, financial situation or if this is out of your reach, like let's talk. And I think, Part of that is because almost more than anything, I always want to try and find a reason to write the piece than not write the piece because I just really like writing music and I like working with people. And so I think for me, having that sense of transparency, I think makes people feel a little bit more open about like, okay, like I'm not going to be like laughed off the face of the earth for suggesting that maybe this is like not workable for me or being asked, you know, for something. And I think um letting people know like right away that I don't you know like there are some people who are completely unapproachable unless you're tied to an institution of some kind and have like you know pretty generous financial backing or you've gotten some kind of large grant 
Um, and I think for me, because I'm so interested in like working with people of any experience level, regardless of who they are, because I really want people to like have positive experiences working with living composers and being excited about commissioning in music and becoming excited about working with more composers in the future that I think that accessibility has been like such a huge part of how I've decided to move forward with things. And, you know, I will get people sometimes who will say like, oh, like, I really feel like I underpaid for this. So I'm going to give you a tip and like, here's some more. And like, that's always nice. You know, I won't say that. Um, but I think for me, it's like, I, you know, the, the school that I went to when I was in high school, we had two high schools and there was like the high school with like a lot of money and a lot of funding and like all the rich parents, like, whose kids like went there and then there was the school that I went to who still had like a lot of the same band equipment and uniforms from when the school opened in the 50s um and yeah. I think you know like seeing you know like all the different accommodations we had to make and all of the different ways that like the students were picking up the labor of what the school wasn't able to afford to fix themselves um I think from an early age really instilled in me that like there's a lot of people who just don't have the same access to materials or experiences as others. And yeah. I want to make sure that whatever I'm paying forward in whatever way I can to people who feel like these things are unreachable to them, that they know that they're not. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's been really exciting because I think I've met some really cool people that might not have otherwise felt comfortable reaching out to me or might not have even known about me if I hadn't been approachable in that way. But I think, also, you said like there's been some times when like, especially if I'm working with an organization or a school that I know has, you know, the financial resources to pay something more substantial or pay a fair wage, then I'm not as shy about quoting that because I know that I'm asking for something that they can reasonably expect to pay and that they would pay anyone else. And I think everyone as a composer and as an artist, when you're setting your prices really just has to look at like, you know, this month, I really can't do any free work, you know, or this month I really can't, you know, like do this other thing. But like when I can do it again, let me reach out to you and let you know that that's available to you. And I've done that before as well. And I think being okay with being flexible and being open with people is something that I've learned is really helpful because I think a lot of us understand kind of like the fluctuating nature of being a freelancer. And even if you have a university job, how things can change pretty quickly um, on a moment's notice that I find that if somebody is like really upset that I'm not going to do something for free or that like I'm asking them to wait because I don't have room on my plate to do something for the price point that they have it at, that they're probably not the kind of person I want to work with anyway. Um, and probably going to have a difficult collaborative experience, you know, in the first place. But I certainly have also learned that when someone can afford, you know, like something more substantial, that not asking for that can sometimes lead them to feel like they can, um, you know, like feel like they can get away with a lot, um, demanding yeah. a lot and, and feel like that, you know, that they still have some of the same, I think, really setting those expectations of like, if I'm doing it for this price, this is the amount of control I still want to maintain over these materials and over this process. And if we're doing it at this point, then you can feel free, you know, to boss me around a little more. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a balancing act too. I definitely have had um, situations, you know, like there's been situations where I wasn't even paid at all, um, you know, than when they were supposed to. And like, you know, those situations are always hard to manage too. But I think, just I think taking it on a case by case basis and starting from a place of like just total transparency and honesty has been 
I think largely pretty successful because really my bad, you know, quote unquote collaborations I've had have been surprisingly very minimal given the number of them that I've had over the course of the last few years. That's yeah, those are some great perspectives Um, and definitely very uh, baked into your experience. You and I both went to Indiana, probably at vastly different times. Cause I'm very, <laughs> but, um, and I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, like that was, that was my last school. Um, and it, I I'm thinking about how generous and egalitarian your, your attitudes are and how practical you are. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering how did that, did that come up? Did, had you formed that philosophy when you were a college student and did it, did it jive with any of your mentors or, um, is that, is that sort of going against advice that you got in school? I feel like my experience at Indiana was um, pretty elitist. And I also came from the high school with the banged up 70s trombones and stuff. And so I often felt like uh, a fish out of water in in that place and kept some of those more practical ideas to myself. Did you go through that at all in school? Not Indiana or not, not, not trying to shame one school over <laughs> another, but... Classical music can be snobby, right? I mean, I think it's, you know, it's hard. I think, I think I really learned when I went to Indiana, because like my undergrad was Luther College um, in Decorah, Mm. and that's like a pretty isolated community. And everyone there is like, you know, like super nice and super welcoming. And there's like Mm -hmm. nothing else to do there except like make your art and, you know, go hang out by the river, (laughs) you know? So it was like, it was like a very, you know, it was like a very close knit, very calm community and the composition teacher there Brooke Joyce is just like really fantastic and is like pretty open-minded about like how people want to pursue things and what they want and I think most of the advice that I ever got from him was more just like being like practical about things like mm-hmm. have your players before you start writing the piece and you know like <laughs> you know just trying to be realistic about certain things but I think both there and at Indiana I definitely like my ambitions would sometimes get me into like trouble sometimes, not necessarily because I wasn't accomplishing the things that I had set out to do, but I think just because they were nervous about how much of my time I was spending on certain things that Mm. I think sometimes if we had a clash, a lot of times it was about how I was prioritizing my time at a given time. Going to Luther, which was like, you know, this liberal arts college, you had to do like 80 credit hours outside of your major. And so the whole point of that was to like instill curiosity and instill this idea of how these different things can all feed into each other and how this kind of like having a good understanding of large concepts or um, you know processes could apply to multiple different things whatever it was you wanted to pursue and so going to a school that was in a university but very much functions like a conservatory mindset where everything is super hyper-focused um, was definitely like a culture shock for me. And it was also strange because, you know, my undergrad, we actually had 12 students at that time who were doing composition mm-hmm. and about half of them were women. And so I grew up in an environment where things were like pretty evenly balanced. It didn't seem yeah. like, you know, like I was kind of like, oh, like sexism, what's anyone talking about? There's plenty of women in this field. And, <laughs> and then I like, it was very sheltered and I was very fortunate to make many mistakes uh, in that sheltered environment. But when I went to IU in our composition department of 50, there was like five or six of us that were women yeah. and it was a spread across we multiple degrees. And, you know, it could be 
you know, like, I think there was definitely times when I felt like, oh, like, people are really trying to stir shit up between <laughs> some of the women in the department or like, you know, there's, there's really not, we didn't have a female professor for any of our composition stuff. A lot of the mentors that I had at IU did end up being men. And I was really lucky that, you know, some of the people I really relied on or like came to trust, like were very like egalitarian and respectful and more forward thinking mm -hmm. that way. I definitely ran into professors who were not that way there. I, I was so excited by all the different things, you know, you could do, like they had some collaboration set up where you could do something with like the dance studio and the film studio and like, you know, like do like these like little mini projects, but they weren't supposed to be like a major focus for your degree. It was really more about like, get your classes, work on your orchestra piece, apply to competitions, you know, that sort of thing. And I just like, I was like, but there's so many resources here. Like, look, you have an entire library that's just about music. That's crazy. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, I was like a kid in a candy store. And so I definitely spent like a lot of time foraying into these like different disciplines. And like, I had an opera that I had written as a thesis for my undergrad that got picked up by an opera company in Bloomington. And so during my first year of my master's, it was fully staged and then done with an orchestra instead of just with the piano. And because I had that going on, I ended up doing an extra semester because I needed time to write my actual thesis for my master's program. But, you know, like because of the theater connection that I made there, that director ended up, he's a DMA, he was a DMA student at the time for the theater department and was going to be doing a production of Macbeth the next year. And he loved working on my opera. So he asked me if I would do the sound design and music for his production of Macbeth, which oh, was wow. like, that would be super fun. And so like, I had never done sound design before. And so I got to work with like a 24 channel audio system where the subwoofers are like under people's seats. And like, there was a bunch of witchy stuff. And like, <laughs> I got to learn like new software and like, it was such a cool thing. I was like, it's so weird that like, we never talked about this being like a career path for composers, you know, that there's like this whole other world of music making that like coordinates with things. And like some of the students who were in that production, who I got to know with through um, their fight choreography sessions, because I had to like sit it on them so I could write like fight music. <laughs> um, nice. They, There's the combat writing yeah, I was wondering so, about. Yes, and so we, uh, <laughs> I, I got to talk to them, and so when I had my electronic music project, I was working with like, oh, I had like spent three hours with one of my friends one night just recording different trash sounds, <laughs> like bubble wrap crinkling and like rubbing <laughs> brown bags together. It was like very new agey. Um, but you know, now I have the sound library I can draw on from forever because I spent three hours <laughs> recording it with my friend, all these different things. And so to make that project like even more exciting for myself, we had, you know, percussionists that we called like trash cushionists that were like playing their trash instruments <laughs> into microphones. But then like on the stage, I worked with two students from the stage combat department that like came and did like a whole, whole choreography to this whole like multi-movement piece and so it was like a piece for electronic trash and stage combat so it just felt like this is like the epitome of like all the different things that I like love doing here you know but because I was spending time doing things with the theater department doing things there sometimes my composition profession would be like and did you apply to any festivals this week and I would be like no because I was writing music you know so I think they I think it came from a place of what they had seen work when they were going through school and what they had seen be successful but I think 
you know, when you're so embedded into like these like very well-established academic kind of worlds where everybody knows each other, everybody's always kind of like at the same conferences or like the same names get floated around. I think sometimes you kind of get to be a little naive about what it's really like being out in the world after school as a musician or as a composer and like what it actually takes if you're not going to go into the teaching route or into the academic circuit in any way to like actually get your name into performers minds and actually get music you know into other organizations hands and you know like that was, those were the things that I felt like I was always bucking to learn more about like well okay but what if I don't want to teach what if I don't want to go on to get my doctorate what if I don't want to you know you know do this like orchestra residency you know path that's like not guaranteed and there's only like three people who ever get them you know like what am I supposed to do and so I was always looking for other options of like what how else can I use music you know in my life and how else can like music be you know implemented in other jobs that you might not normally think like if you're going to be you know, the director of community outreach and education, you know, how can you use, you know, the commission of new music to enact those, you know, interests for an organization? Or if you're going to work in a theater, you know, how can you embed, you know, original music or your sound expertise into, you know, these theatrical productions? And um, I don't know, this is a very long and rambling answer to your question. But no, it's great. I think, I think I'm, I'm, I've always been someone that's just, I'm very curious about things all the time. And I'm always looking for like, what else can we do? Or like, how else can we tie in like another element to make this even bigger and more crazy and unwieldy um, and like make it really cool. And I think that can be really scary for some people who don't have experience putting those different like multifaceted things together. But I, <laughs> I think a common quote I have is like, but is that a good reason to say I'm not going to do it? I don't think it is. <laughs> so. That sounds inspiring. So I don't know. I just love, I guess I just really love working a lot all the time. So Yeah, yeah, I, it sounds like it. As you were talking, you mentioned that you went to a small liberal arts school in Iowa, which mm -hmm. I also did. So as a, a fellow, you know, person who wanted to take as many non-music electives as, as humanly possible, I like deeply related to that. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you feel like that informed who you became as a composer? I'm thinking particularly of our collaboration with the Chicken Quartet, because I like I've, I've been carrying that coffee table book around for literally multiple decades, showing it to people. And I, I feel like you're the first composer that I felt like I could show it to that wasn't going to go, oh, what? Do you, do you think your time in the more open and more variety requiring liberal arts school shaped the way that you approach your musical career? I think so. I mean, I know when I left high school, I had been pretty active in music, but I still wasn't convinced that it was something I was going to do full time because I had a lot of different interests. I really loved history and I really loved learning about, um, you know, like, different stories from like the English language and like I didn't know like you know I had like everything from being like maybe an Egyptologist to like a reporter or a writer or working with horses was like all on the table uh, when I left high school and so I think for me Luther ended up being a really great place for me to just like explore a lot of different interests and I just kept finding you know I would take a class 
on, you know, ancient science was like my non-lab science credit where you talked about all these like different like aqueducts and like all the different like scientific things that happened, you know, in ancient times. And I just, every class I took like that, or like I took a film class or I took this, like I just kept, my mind just kept wrapping it back to like tying it into music somehow. And that I just started to realize like, oh, like as a composer, I don't have to give up any of my interests because I can just write a piece about it if I want to learn more about it. And like, I think having that kind of like experience of realizing that like the world of writing music just was so open and that you could really just like, you know, like I had seen someone write a piece using like the text was literally just like a recipe for mac and cheese, you know, and like, you know, like if they can do that, like I could do anything, you know? And so I was just, I think what Luther really did was help me see how to tie, really helped me train, like how to tie all of those different things together and like apply these kind of like broad concepts so that, you know, when I'm talking to a dancer or I'm talking to a visual artist or I'm talking to someone whose first language isn't music, that I have a way to talk to them and collaborate with them and kind of make things understandable with their own vernacular. And I don't know, I think having that kind of like environment where that was like not only like nurtured and sustained for four years but like was actively like the only way that you were going to graduate <laughs> definitely like defined my character by the time I went to IU because I think if I would have started at IU I probably would have ended up being a much different person or having a different understanding of you know how narrow a focus something you know how a narrow focus should function um but I think because I because I kind of went into it not really sure what I was going to do that finding out a way where I can still do everything <laughs> kind of ended up being you know the great takeaway from my undergraduate experience. That's really exciting. I You encounter so many musicians who are so hyper hyper focused and um, it's it's always neat to meet people who find a way to be more well-rounded in who they are and what they do. Our next question is one that Nicole wrote but I'm gonna steal it and I'm going to steal it because I relate to it deeply personally and because I, I have like a little anecdote I want to share. You probably don't remember, but before we interacted as like people, people, I encountered you on Twitter and I did what I always do, which is go through um, your catalog and look for pieces with flute. And at the time, one of the only flute works you had was a duo for flute and clarinet called the Sweet Ass Cycle. I'm going to get the <laughs> movements wrong because I can never keep them straight. But one of them was like fat ass Robin. And one of them was something about a pterodactyl. And I've been trying to get a, a clarinet colleague to play this with me for years and years and years and years. But I emailed you and you were like super nice and sent me the score and then sent me another email. And we're like, oh, and by the way, if you're worried about swears in the in the title, I have a I have a clean version, too. Which, like, it had never occurred to me that anyone would have any issue with a sweet-ass cycle or a fat-ass robin. I was just like, I love this title. I don't even know if I care what it sounds like. I have to play it. So Nicole wrote, and I want to know, because clearly I need some help in this regard. <laughs> how do you calculate the right balance of, like, your personality, who you are as a person, and the sort of professionalism slash stodginess that we sometimes find in the classical music community. Please educate me. 
I mean, it's uh, the best teacher's experience. So, you know, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely haven't come away from every collaboration on Bird. The, that piece in particular, I think that was like the first time I had like a swear in my title. And like, I was going in, I, that was the summer before I went to IU. And so I was like feeling really edgy. And I was like, I'm going to put this like thing in here. It's going to be so funny. And I think at the time, you know, like, when I had first written the piece, it had just been one movement, which was the last movement, Big Ass Moth. It was just like, it was inspired by encountering a large Luna moth in the shower at one of the music festivals I went to and I screamed. And so the last movement of that piece has screams in it. Um, but I think, you know, that piece got really, really popular um, after it first was done at Brevard um, for a while and especially after the other movements came in that for a while that was like my most performed piece and so as people are like always hungry for repertoire um, you're going to start to encounter people outside your circle so when it started getting to people who weren't you know other college students um, you know or people who were fresh out of college I started to like get every once in a while like you know, like some, like, you know, some very, like, well-intentioned Midwestern flute teacher that would be like, um, so I want to put this on, like, a recital, but it's going to have parents there, and I don't really feel comfortable, like, do you have any alternate titles, or, like, are you okay if we just, like, use the abbreviations, and so I hadn't really thought about it before, and I know one of, uh, one of my former teachers had programmed it somewhere and the person playing it um had literally said like I will not play a piece with ass in the title and like <laughs> just like so we had to kind of like we changed like ass to like angry in some of the places and like you know like for big ass moth became like big angry moth or like we just like came up with alternate words for that and so I think for me, it was just kind of realizing like, oh, this like community is pretty big. And so you're going to run up to against some like weird attitudes like that sometimes. So I think for me, just having the attitude of like, I'm alive and I can like make changes and we can accommodate, you know, things up to a certain extent, you know, if it makes people just feel more comfortable about the music or something like I'm not going to begrudge someone the opportunity to play my music just because they don't like the title <laughs> if they're willing to play it even if they don't like the title I think I can meet them halfway that way too so I think you know for me it's you know it is hard sometimes because I think I have encountered some people who have you know they've heard one piece of mine that had like kind of a funny title or it's like kind of goofier in nature and then they kind of have encountered a different piece of mind that's maybe like a little darker more quote-unquote like serious and they're like oh I didn't realize that you like you know wrote like actual like real you know serious concert music <laughs> and it was like you know like I try to take those as like teaching moments to the person who's talking to me and saying like it actually takes a lot of skill and time and thought to make something funny and good you know because humor is so subjective and I think you know like there's so much there's so much serious weighty music there's so much music that already exists out there that talks about a lot of the like dark things and like I have written you know a 20 minute piece for wind ensemble and two voices about living with anxiety that includes a movement that's basically a musical panic attack mm. you know like I've I have I have been to those dark places and like have needed to use music as a way to express those things. But I think a lot of times, like, I don't know that that's always what people want. And if you have a recital, that's like only dark, you know, 
like moody music that only explores the darker emotions of something like as an audience that's really difficult to sit through if it's not thought out well and I think as a musician you're missing out on like half of life's experiences because life is like all of the good things and the bad things and like sometimes like you you need to sit and appreciate the beauty of the chicken you know or you need to sit and appreciate how funny it was that you got stuck on a mountain with your friends or like how cool it was that you got to see like lightning at eye level or you know I think I just think that there's there's so many things that like visual art or film or other musical um, non-musical mediums have been able to capture in terms of the array of emotions and music can capture so many things that I think limiting it to things that are either very heavy or very serious. Sometimes like I want to hear a concerto or like a 20 minute symphony piece that's like about a zoo or something, you know, the, or the, that's about the uh, the hairy frogfish that I sent you on, on Twitter <laughs> the other day. You know, like there's there's so many cool things out there. And I think just like being able as a musician to give yourself permission to want to explore and express the full bandwidth of humanity and what it means to be a person, I think is part of your duty as an artist. And I think if someone encounters a piece of mine and decides from that one piece that I'm not a very serious composer or that I'm like not a very serious person, you know, that's that's the fault of their own lack of research <laughs> and imagination. Like, it's hard for me to feel too bad about that because I think given all the music I've written, I know myself well enough to know that I'm a complete person and I can be silly and have fun, but sometimes I would rather live in that space for a while than in the sad, serious space. Well, and you certainly communicate that clearly on your, your website. I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone who paid any attention could accuse you of being only one thing. Thinking, thinking more about kind of working outside, outside of your sphere, as you said earlier, how hard do you try to keep track of performances? I mean, how 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 do you manage to keep track of performances of your pieces when it's not someone like Elizabeth who's very communicative and and thoughtful about this sort of thing and and shares those details with you? Yeah, I mean, it's a challenge. I think, you know, there's definitely periods of time where like it just completely falls out of my mind for a mm -hmm. while and then I'll have a weekend where I go, "Oh my gosh, like that's right, there's like some performances happening." And I'll just start, you know, like Googling my name or Googling, like going back through my emails and looking at stuff. And so some of it is definitely retroactive. Um, sometimes you find out that something was done and you had no idea that it was yeah. ever happening. Um, and that's always a surprise too. And like, I think unless it's like, you know, like a huge ensemble piece or something, I, if it's just like a chamber piece, I tend not to be like, oh, hey, how did you get that music? Or why didn't you tell me about it? Because I know some people think that we don't don't care but mm -hmm. usually the way that that happens is like if I find out someone's done something and hasn't talked to me about it instead of being like you never paid for this score you know it's like I don't mm -hmm. know it's like $25 like it's fine you know I'm just kind of like I will email them and say hi like I saw that you did this and like I you know thank you so much for giving us a performance you know I would love to have a copy of the program for my records and you know, like if you do any more of my work in the future, feel free to reach out. And I think having that attitude has definitely like helped people feel more comfortable saying like, oh yeah, you know, like I have this performance. And I think sometimes people don't realize that when they play someone's music, it's not like, you know, there isn't a fee you normally have to you pay in like outside of the score fee just to perform the music. 
but when you report that performance for the composer, there's other money that comes from other mysterious places that the composer can get from royalties from it being performed. And so while it doesn't cost you anything, it does give the, the composer some kickback sometimes depending on the performance. So it's just good for us to know for record keeping. And I think for me, what's helpful is just when I see, you know, for example, during the pandemic, I have two wind octets that were picked up by a ton of college band programs because they had a limit to how many people could actually be in a room. Mm -hmm. And so this piece I wrote back in like 2013 um, at Luther has been played now almost more than anything else um, passed through. And then this other octet I wrote called Our Little Secrets was also picked up quite a bit. One is a little bit more somber and the other one's a little more silly. And I think you know, seeing all of those different performances come in was really exciting because like those ones are a lot easier to find because the college uh, programs are always like good about like uploading stuff. But I think for me, then I could see like, oh, there's a real need here for this kind of repertoire, like that there's there was a real hunger for this type of instrumentation. And that helps give me ideas as I'm moving forward with planning projects in the future, like, hey, like there's actually a real need for, you know, this stuff. And like, I can kind of pass on to my other composer friends, like, by the way, I have this octet that's taking off. So it seems like a lot of people could really use this. So if you have a piece, you know, that you could arrange for a similar ensemble, I'd be happy to pass your name on and that piece on to this, you know, to these directors who are clearly in need of this music. And so I think that kind of information gathering and being able to use that to help other composers is something that, at least for me, has been really important that way. Um, So keeping track of stuff is it's a process and it definitely takes a lot of time. Sometimes you have to get creative about figuring out where to search um, for different things happening. But I, I have not, I have yet to regret an afternoon spent doing that because I always learn something new. <laughs> so, Wow. Yeah, that's great advice and a great reminder to performers. Because I think we are always trying to track down um, performances of FNMC pieces as well. And I think, um, yeah, it's just not something that performers are taught that, it's good to share this information with the composers. Do you, I don't know what you're going to do with this question. You seem, you seem like you say, you say yes to every interesting opportunity, but Kim, do you have any instruments or instrument combinations that you particularly enjoy writing for or any that you find particularly challenging? In terms of ones I enjoy, I have to say like, I just love the flute. I just think the flute is like so cool and it can do everything and it can do anything I ask it to you know like when I was at Luther one of the first friends I made who is now still my very best friend um is a flutist named Daniel Gallagher he is fantastic he does I mean he he is like played so much new music and like he's I consider him like in a lot of ways almost like a co-composer on some of my flute music because I'm always sending him stuff being like is this also doable and like is this something that like is like totally crazy to ask a college player to do and then you know like he's and he's been so encouraging but like when we were in nice. school together because we had to find our players in order to get approval from our teacher to write the pieces I always knew my mm-hmm. friend Daniel would say yes and so a lot of my music from college had flute in it because I just knew like oh he can do it and he wants to do it and like what a great reason to do that nice um, thank you Daniel and- <laughs> yes <laughs> everyone should thank Daniel (laughs) but he uh you know I think because of that then when I got to college and or like to IU and beyond I tried to stay away from the flute for a little bit just because I had written for it so much I was like I really need to learn how to write for like 
guitar because it's also like one of those instruments that's everywhere but that people who aren't guitarists rarely know how to write for mm, um, yeah like taught so that's something I'm still definitely afraid of and working on but I think even as I've gone through things like I just I don't know I just can't stay away from the flute you know like I the two pieces that I just finished recently one was a trio for clarinet horn and bassoon and the other one's a duo for clarinet and horn and the duo was so hard to write because there's not a lot of existing music for that combination and like it was just you know figuring out like how is this going to balance and like can this instrument match this you know other instruments facility and all of that stuff is is pretty tricky and then I also finished a flute choir piece recently and that one it was supposed to be six minutes and I wrote five minutes of it in a day because I was just like so happily like working away being like oh I've got tons of ideas for this you know and so I think I think if I'm being honest with myself artistically like flute is always going to be something that happens to come up in my catalog pretty frequently Mm -hmm. as I move forward but I think you know I just, I'm really, I love chamber music a lot because I just love, I think you probably both can tell from the piece of mind you've played, but I just love, I love like hocketing and I love like passing lines really quickly between players and like playing a lot with like different color. And I think when you get into the orchestra world, like they have so little rehearsal time and they have so little capacity and all of the other things that they're tasked with doing and preparing an orchestra concert to be able to do the kind of like high level detail that I love doing in chamber music, it's hard to like explode that into a big orchestra setting where they just don't have time to play together. And I think for me, chamber music has been really exciting because it gets people an excuse to be in the room together and to collaborate and to talk. And like, they have to like look at each other's music and look at the score and say like, oh, like this is how my line passes. And I think, you know, it can be the parts themselves I've heard a lot like never look that challenging but then like when you put them together figuring out how all those things get put together is like usually what the bulk of rehearsal is about with my music and I really love like facilitating those kinds of experiences for musicians where I give them an excuse to actually sit and talk to each other and not just like prepare their parts separately and then come in and be like all right I guess that went together fine so (laughs) on to the next thing. Yeah, I loved I loved um I loved working on foul play and yeah, you put everything in there that we needed to know, but you you did. You you created opportunities for us to create something artistic with what you'd written, which was really a joy. Uh, a question we've been asking a lot of composers lately, and which I'm really interested to hear your response to, um, if you could just materialize or or sort of manifest your ideal commission or collaboration? What are a project or projects you just would really love to work on? So I had I had a, a project idea that came to me pretty recently. Um, and, you know, back in February, my partner and I were celebrating five years and we went to Spain for a few days. And while we were there, we got to go to the Prado Museum in Madrid. And we spent like almost five hours there. It's like the longest I've ever been <laughs> museum but it was so cool um and one of the exhibits they had um is they had a ton of paintings by Bosch who does all of these like he's from like you know like old like renaissance painting era but his stuff is like almost like you know cartoonish nightmares of like weird creatures and like people like in weird positions and like he has this um triptych painting so it's like in three parts 
that's called uh, the Garden of Earthly Delights. And so like the first part is supposed to be like kind of like a paradise and like the middle part is like people like frolicking and doing all sorts of, you know, fun debauchery and sort of things. And then the last one is supposed to be kind of like hell and it has like, you know, people getting gobbled alive and someone has like nooms getting like tattooed onto their skin and, you know, people, I don't know, it's, it's pretty dark, but I just like the, the painting itself was just so impactful seeing it in person and seeing all the detail and like you could like try and pick apart all of the different like things that he like was depicting with like all the different allusions to different like bible stories or different things like you know for decades um and people have and him as a painter is like so mysterious like people don't really know where this came from like if he was like maybe he had some mental hallucinations or if he was on drugs a lot or like what his deal was like people don't really know I just think after seeing that painting I just can't get out of my head how cool it would be to do like a full a fully staged and fully costumed like ballet that Mm. like depicts these like different scenes and these different kind of like little miniature ideas he has and like have like a full like chamber orchestra with like the costumes and all the weird people and like you could have a great mix of like classical and contemporary ballet styles. And like, I don't know, I just think it would be really cool. And if there's a ballet company that happens to listen to your podcast that has a lot of money and wants to like have me do it, I would be totally down. So that's my dream right now. <laughs> I'm Googling these paintings while you're talking. And there is a very large bird that appears to be shoving a human being into its mouth. And there also is... It, I, it looks like a shrimp tail. I'm not sure what it's supposed to be, but it's a, a giant shrimp tail and four or five people are being wedged headfirst into the shrimp tail. So that's a ballet I want to see. That sounds like a yeah. costumer's dream. Well, I just think there's so many fun things you could do with choreography and like with like percussion and like really fun colors and like textures with the instruments. So I don't know. I just think it would be a blast to write and an even more blast to go see it as, as an audience member. So. Yeah, keep us posted on that project. Kim, I find your curiosity so inspiring. And so I'm really excited to ask you our favorite and always our final question. What are three pieces you're listening to right now? Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) I think, so for whatever reason, recently I've been listening, I think just because it's like really nice and I can see a mountain out my window, I've been listening a lot to the Spirited Away soundtrack. Mm. um again and like it was the soundtrack that I've like loved for a really long time but like for whatever reason it's just come back into my rotation again um it's just like it's like super colorful and fun and just like anywhere you're driving around Portland because there's like forest and mountain and ocean and like cliffs and caves and everything it just feels super appropriate um so that's something that's definitely been on my radio a lot right now um I actually also um, so my partner, uh, his, his family is from Mexico. And so he's been like spending a lot of time introducing me to like a lot of um, music from that area. And so we've been like watching a lot of um, Pedro Infante movies. And those are like these really cool films where there's a lot of singing in it. So it almost acts as like, there's like a film, but then it's also like a little cabaret where like he just breaks into songs sometimes. And he's like really charming and funny and kind of a scoundrel. And so um, there's been a lot of like, Pedro Infante songs like he has one that's called like a thousand years that's like super famous very romantic very fun like 
you know, Mexican bel canto tenor goodness. Um, so that's also <laughs> been my brain a lot. Um, and then I'm trying to think what else has been in. I've been, somebody reached out recently about doing a guitar ensemble piece, um, which is scary because I haven't done much for guitar, but I've been thinking about doing it. And so I've been listening to um, George Giannopoulos, I think is his name, has a YouTube channel where he has just fantastic amount of score videos mm. where you can just like listen to music and see the score going through. He has like hundreds and hundreds of videos. And so I was just going through his channel, finding um, other people's works that had guitar in it or were for solo guitar. And luckily for me the other day, he uploaded quite a number of them. So I've just been going through that YouTube channel a lot and listening to stuff. So if anyone needs score resources, especially for living composers, I highly recommend going to his YouTube channel <laughs> to check that out. A tip. Yeah. And I'll include that in the show notes too. So people can find that link. Great. Kim, thank you so much. It's a delight to talk to you both. <laughs> you too. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Music Crush. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also support the podcast, read show notes, and learn more about FNMC by visiting www.flutenewmusicconsortium.com.